library, it appears that Blue Stocking has been able to make contact in the steampunk dollhouse will begin transmitting momentarily. Stay tuned for more news from these intrepid defenders of all our literary freedoms. and I will be your librarian and your host for the next hour or so. If you are a returning listener, you have my eternal thanks for continuing to to tune in. (laughs) If this is your first time in the dollhouse, please come in, have a seat. Uh, But be aware that this show is, by necessity, overflowing with spoilers, so if that's going to be an issue, I would suggest that you turn back now and read these books before you continue. It's okay, I will be here when you get back. And I do also want to add a trigger warning here at the top of the show that there will be discussions of sexual assault and rape in this episode. So, first, I get a little bit of housekeeping and businessy, some fun news uh, out of the way. Well, I think it's fun. Um, I had already mentioned that I was going to Steampunk November on November 11th uh, here in North Texas. But it looks like I will also be going to the Wild West Victorian Fest in Kerrville, Texas in December. Um, I've never been to either event, so at this time I can't really give any reviews as to the nature of the event, but I am open to enjoying both of them. I will put links in the show notes for you, and I'm hoping that I get to see some of you um, at one or both of them. I think you'll know me. (laughs) I will have my cosplay ready to go. I'm building the bits and pieces of my costume, and we're almost done. I did also want to let you know, that there is a smaller event that's coming up on November 5th uh, in Manor, Texas. It's called the Steampunk Shindig, and it's on a Sunday. It's running from noon to 8, noon to 8 p.m. Uh, it's being hosted by the gang that does the Texas Steampunk Connection, and they're going to have music and games and a raffle uh, and a costume contest, among a whole lot of other things. And there are going to be a whole bunch of vendors to visit. Uh, that one I won't be going to. Uh, it's just a timing thing. I can't go down to that one. But I do recommend that you go and have some fun, and you will find links for that event as well as links for the podcast Texas Steampunk Connection in the notes. Now, on to recent events. Um, It's getting so... I feel like I can't sufficiently sum up all of everything that's happening anymore. There's too much, um, just all the time. So right now... um, I'm going to focus on the ongoing sexual harassment accusations that keep coming up week after week after week, um, where nothing ever really gets done. And this Harvey Weinstein debacle, it's the latest, but it won't be the last. I think we all know that uh, for one very simple reason, in that sexual predators are continuing allowed to exist in society with never really any real repercussions. Um... Every time a prominent man is accused, the first thing anyone says is, well, why didn't she come forward sooner? Um, Then, as we know, this is usually followed by the assumption that the accuser wants money or fame or revenge or some other bullshit reason. And we all know this makes absolute sense because any time a woman comes forward with a story like this, she's immediately believed and celebrated and has money thrown at her and people are just assholes. I think people need to understand how common rape and sexual assault actually is. Um, So here's some truth for you. Um, I've talked about this on Facebook and Twitter a few times. Um, I don't talk about... Sometimes I feel like I talk about it too much. Sometimes I feel like I don't talk about it enough. But I feel like I need to say it here as well because people, people need to hear things, I think, more than what they need to hear it over and over again so that they can begin to understand I am a rape survivor. Um, I was 17, and he was my boyfriend. It happened repeatedly over the course of a year, and I never told anyone. Not at that time. Um, I thought it was normal. No, it wasn't. 
<laughs> of course, but it took me 20 years to accept what happened to me and to begin calling it what it was. Uh, it affected all of my adult relationships, and I've really only begun to heal and to recognize it for what it was within the last few years. Now, that's just my story. Um, it's entirely normal. It's entirely banal. He wasn't a stranger. Um, this is the story of so many, many people. I'm just, I'm just one of many, and it's not just women. Men can and have been assaulted and raped as well. You need to understand that victims and survivors are all around you. We are everywhere. We are legion. Um, now, for those of you who like some cold hard facts with your emotional pleas, um, according to Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, um, one out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted rape or completed rape in her lifetime. 14.8% completed, 2.8% attempted. About 3% of American men, or 1 in 33, have experienced an attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. From 2009 to 2013, Child Protective Services agencies substantiated or found strong evidence to indicate that 63,000 children a year were victims of sexual abuse. A majority of the child victims are 12 to 17. Of victims under the age of 18, 34% of victims of sexual assault and rape are under 12, and 66% of the victims of sexual assault and rape are age 12 to 17. So those are the facts. That's what you need to know, and this is what you need to understand about coming forward. We all have to learn how to process things in our own way and in our own time, and that doesn't always mean immediately speaking out and coming forward. These are excruciating experiences, and no two are alike. So if your first initial reaction is to insist that a victim go to the police and name names, please rethink that and back up and just listen to what the victim needs and what they're saying. Just be there and believe them. Don't insist that they do anything more. They will tell you what they need. Don't tell them what they need to do. That doesn't help. Um, and I've included a link in the notes for Rain. So if you want to help and you don't understand how, Rain is a very good place to start. I know that's a heavy-duty subject, but we tiptoe around things way, way too much in our society and in our culture. And this is how rape culture continues, and it needs to stop. Um... And so now, um, I do believe it's time to take a look at this week's books, which, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, deal largely with a woman's fight to maintain her own agency and her bodily autonomy um, when she's being pursued by an unfeeling government and a horribly rigid class system. <laughs> and, and no, these don't take place in America 2017. So we are going to hear a quick word about Audible, and then let's talk. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week, of course, I'm recommending The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, book one in the Fall of the Gaslit Empire series by Rod Duncan. It's exciting and adventurous and politically thrilling and absolutely amazing, and as an added bonus, um, for you Game of Thrones fans, it is narrated, narr <laughs> it's narrated by Gemma Whelan, who plays Yara Greyjoy, and she does an amazing job. She does all three of the books. It's, it's so good. It's really well done. So, visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download The Bullet Catcher's Daughter or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Alright, kiddos, let's get started. Today we are discussing... The Fall of the Gaslit Empire series by author Rod Duncan. And we have The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, Unseemly Science, and The Custodian of Marvels. Now, the books take place in an alternative 2009 in um, England, 
but it's not it's not what we would expect. Uh, it's a little bit different. But as usual, before we get into all that, there are some um, terms and ideas that I wanted to go over uh, just to to lay some groundwork here. Now, alchemy has come up quite a bit in the books that we've discussed uh, over the last few months. And we've talked about things like quintessence, but I've never really gone into alchemy itself. So I wanted to give a brief, for those that are unfamiliar um, with the quote-unquote science, I wanted to give just a brief explanation. Um, it's a philosophical and proto or early scientific tradition. Um, most people associate it, I think, with Europe, but it, al- it was also practiced in Africa and Asia. Um, its intention was to purify and mature and perfect certain things. Um, the most common of which everyone is usually familiar with is the transmutation of base metals like lead into uh, things like gold, which were considered noble metals. There was also uh, a drive to create an elixir of immortality, um, to cure disease, there was, you know, the Philosopher's Stone, if you know Harry Potter, and everybody does, the Philosopher's Stone, although there's not even a real consensus on what the Philosopher's Stone was, um, but it's it's deep in the heart of alchemy. Um, but the, the perfection of the human body, um, that was part of what they were striving for, in, at least in the from what I've been reading, the Hellenistic and the Western tradition, and they were trying to achieve... Um, Gnosis or Gnosis, it's knowledge, um, ultimate knowledge, I believe. Um, but that also goes into a whole other discussion that we don't um, have a room or time for. Now, like I said, the most of us know of European alchemy, but it did exist in the Far East, uh, the Indian subcontinent, the Muslim world. Um, and in Europe, there was a 12th century renaissance um, as Islamic texts on science and Aristotle started to flow over into Europe. There started to be an interplay of, of knowledge and literature among those who could read back and forth. And so alchemists started to play a very, very large part um, in what would become uh, early modern science, early chemistry, early medicine. Um, the Islamic and the European alchemists, they had lab techniques, they had theories, they had terminology, they had experiments, they had methods, and some of the stuff that they came up with, not all of it was crazy, not all of it was bunk and magical, some of it worked, and some of it has continued. Um, They did believe, though, deeply in that, the belief of the four elements, earth, air, fire, water, Um, and then spirit was the fifth element, and then not Lilu, spirit, and there was, alchemy was also mixed up with cryptology and ciphers and magic, and there was mythology, and a religion was built around it, and when you read about the early um, alchemical texts and the things in them that make absolutely no sense, the eye of newt and tongue of frog that's been turned into the witchcraft uh, tropes, most of those books were in code. They weren't really... Like, things like Water of Life, um, I think is Mercury or Quick... No, Quicksilver is Mercury. Um, there was a lot of different code names for the actual ingredients that they were using. That's why those t- texts are still so hard to figure out today. Um, so that's a bit of alchemy. Um it's still being looked at today. Uh, they're still trying to, like I said, a lot of the alchemical texts are still trying to figure out because of the codes that they were written in and to see what it is that they were actually doing. Um, but alchemy is also a, that's that's the basic when we talk about it in a lot of these books, like this one and uh, the Great Library series and the uh, Alchemy Wars trilogy. Um so that you know where it's coming from, that's that's the, the alchemy that um, the traditions that the authors are drawing from and building on it is a fascinating subject. Um, the Rosicrucians, the chemical wedding, there's so much that I can't get into. Maybe I'll do some supplementals on it sometime. So that is your basic explanation of alchemy.
Now, the other thing that we need to know for this book, for these books, uh, very, very important are the Luddites. Um, if you don't know what the Luddites are, they were uh, a group of English textile workers, um, weavers and workers the, in the 19th century. They were <laughs> destroying weaving machinery uh, as a form of protest. But they, they were protesting the machinery um, as a, as, because they believed it was uh, quote-unquote fraudulent and deceitful manner to get around labor practices. And they feared that the time spent learning skills would go to waste there that this all the skills that they learned were going to waste because the machines could replace them. Um, now it's some it's it's a misconception um, of the Luddites that they were protesting the technology itself or that they were trying to halt progress. They weren't. They were trying to halt themselves being replaced because these skills that they had, especially the weaving technology and the textile technology. The weaving and the dyeing and the working of um, the material and these were things that you learned over a course of a lifetime, you know, master to apprentice. These were hard won skills and to have a machine come in and replace you, <laughs> um, it was an insult and it was horrible. But nowadays, uh, a Luddite has come to, to meet anyone who's against... Um, you know, technology or computers or automation. Um, the movement began in uh, Nottingham in England, and it became a, somewhat of a region-wide rebellion. It ran from about 1811 to 1816. Now, mill owners um, eventually began shooting protesters, and then the military came in and, and suppressed the entire thing. Um, the funny thing, though, uh, that I didn't realize until I was looking into this for the show is that the actual origin of the name Luddite is not really known. Uh, the movement was supposed to be named after a Ned Ludd, uh, who was supposedly an apprentice who allegedly smashed two stocking frames in 1779, and his name became emblematic of these uh, destroyers and protesters. But Ned Ludd is fictional. Uh, it was used as a way to shock the government, and what I was reading says that he's kind of like uh, Robin Hood. Did he really live? Did he really do this? We don't know. It's the name more than the figure itself that matters. So that's Ned Ludd and the Luddites, and they're going to be very important um, because they are one of the groups that we'll be um, dealing with in the books. Now, the other thing that I wanted to talk about were the Romani, or the Gypsies, because uh, this comes up as well. Um, at this point, if you don't know it, Gypsy is, is a pejorative. It's not nice. Um... It tends to have connotations of illegal behavior, um, not normal, dirty, thieving, and that's not cool. Nobody wants to be wants their people to be seen that way. Um, so, Romani or Romani, I've heard it said both ways. Uh, that's the 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 more that's the correct term. Um, they are people in diaspora, uh, but they've they've. You hear about them most in uh, Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe. Um, there have been, I didn't realize this until, again, I was, re I was reading into it, and they have actually done some genetic testing, and they found that they did arrive, or they did originate in northern India. They came into Midwest Asia and Europe around a thousand years ago. Um, and they've been kind of moving around um, that area for, you know, a millennium. Now, uh, in the 19th century, some of them started to migrate to uh, America. And it is estimated that there's one million Roma in the United States and about 800,000 in Brazil, um, most of whose ancestors immigrated in the 19th century from Eastern Europe, and which I thought was interesting. And then um, in February of 2016, during the International Roma Conference, the Indian Minister of External Affairs stated that the people of the Roma community were children of India, and the conference ended with a recommendation to the government to recognize the Roma community that was spread across 30 countries as part of the Indian diaspora. And we've talked about Indian diaspora before with the A.J. Hartley books, um, the South African Indian diaspora. Now, one more that I wanted to cover, um, because they're conflated quite a bit, but they are different. Uh, Irish travelers, um, different group, also called gypsies, also pikies, um, pavies. Not nice names. They're Irish travelers. 
Um, they are also a, a nomadic, tend to be a nomadic group with their own set of traditions. Um, they live mostly in Ireland, but they do travel in large numbers across the United Kingdom and in the U.S. Um, unlike the Roma, their Irish traveler origins um, are somewhat disputed. And they did not have really any ethnic status from the Irish government until recently, in 2017. They were a group apart in Ireland. They weren't really um, recognized until 2017. Um, But interestingly, there is actually quite a few, um, from what I understand, there's a a large population of Irish travelers here uh, in North Texas, moving around the North Texas area. I found that out a few years ago. so they emigrated over, um, but like I said, terms like gypsies, pikeys, things like that, not cool. Um, they have connotations that are not correct and keep people in a class that we need to break. We need to break the class systems, and that's also a big part of what this book, these books are about, is breaking that class system um, and, 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 you know breaking out of these names that in these these boxes that we put people into. So <clears throat> that is your lesson on alchemy, the Luddites, uh, the Roma, <laughs> and Irish travelers. So now moving on, uh, the reason that you needed to know all this. Bullet Catcher's Daughter is the first book. It's about a woman named Elizabeth Barnes, Barnabas. It takes place in 2009, but it's not in 2009 that you would recognize. Um, because what we have, England is actually two kingdom or two nations. There is the kingdom, um, which London is a part of, and then there's the Anglo-Scottish Republic. Uh, the kingdom, I believe, is Christian. The Republic is very rational, and they are Luddites. They celebrate Ned Ludd Day. Um, Leicester is kind of the dividing line. It's uh, there's where the smuggling back and forth can occur. The emigration. Um, they can be legally crossed there as well, but Leicester is where people go um, to get over the border if they need to, and they can't do it legally. Um, but whenever you want to cross from one or to the other, other emigration and immigration fees that you have to pay crossing from one into the other. Um, lightly mentioned are also there's a Russian Republic, there's uh, China is mentioned, a Confederacy, which I assume is some sort of alternate U.S., and then Ethiopia because they're countries that they deal with. Um But what we have, starting with the bullet catcher's daughter, we have Elizabeth Barnabas. She was raised in a traveling show, which is why I explained about the Roma and the Irish travelers to you. She was raised in a traveling show. Uh, Her father was a bullet catcher. And she lives a double life, um, which actually began when she was performing in the show with her father. She would become, there was an act with her and her quote-unquote brother. Elizabeth has no brother, um... Elizabeth is <laughs> her brother, but because of the world that she lives in between the kingdom and the republic, women are are very restricted, and we'll get more into that. And so in order for Elizabeth to survive as a woman on her own, she has to have a brother who takes care of her, uh, who watches her, because a woman can't live on her own. It's not possible. You cannot be an independent woman in this world. But she works as a private detective, and uh, at the time that we find her, she's been approached to solve um, the disappearance of an aristocrat and um, a missing uh, arcane machine. And in order to get to what, in order to do what she needs to do, she has to um, infiltrate a tra- another traveling circus. But um, the problem is that she is being pursued at all times by, well, she starts to run into what's called the Peyton Office, and the Peyton Office is incredibly powerful. They're the eyes and ears of the world, um, similar to the Great Library, or similar to the, the library from the Great Library series. Uh, the Peyton Office controls it all. They control the technology. They control everything, and also we'll get into that more in a minute. But what we also find out about Elizabeth, the reason that she's living She lives in the Republic as a fugitive. She's originally from the kingdom. She lives in the Republic, and the reason that she lives there as a fugitive on a boat, on a canal uh, in North Leicester, is because when she was performing in her father's show when she was 14, uh, she was noticed by the Duke of Northampton, and the Duke liked younger girls very, very much. 
and he tried to buy her from her father, and her father obviously refused and took her away. So the Duke, through a corrupt agent of the patent office, um, had her father run into the ground into debt in debtor's prison. Um, the Duke bought the debts, and Elizabeth became wrapped up in a part of that. She was indentured. She was supposed to be indentured to the Duke, and knowing what was going to happen to her in the Duke's household, she ran. She ran, she got across the border, and she's been living her life for some years now in the Republic, hiding. But the Duke is still after her. The Duke is still looking for her. The Duke has never been able to forget her and wants to find her, and the bounty on her head grows ridiculously every year, and it's going to be a problem. Uh, so in the first book, again, she's looking for this missing aristocrat and trying to find this, this uh, alchemical device and she gets in with a group of, um, with another traveling circus. She meets John Farthing, the patent officer who, or the patent, the officer, the, the agent of the patent office who clearly um, is interested in her, but he has a job to do as well. And she ends up becoming very good friends with a young man named Tinker, um, who kind of attaches himself to her and begins to try to protect her. Um, Everything works out at the end of that when she has to run again. Um, and the young woman who had initially contracted her turned out to not be a noble woman. After all, she was a she was a maid. And we find out at the beginning of book two that she ends up uh, being hanged for her deception, for trying to pretend to be above her station. And so in Unseemly Science... Um, Elizabeth is still pretending to be her brother. Oh, and through all of this, she's also got a really close friend named Julia Swain, who doesn't live on the canal, but lives near her. Um, and initially, Julia had a crush on Elizabeth's brother until Julia found out the truth. And she was she was not happy when she found out the truth. She was very upset. But Julia is 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 something else. She's a Republican woman, but she she wants to be a lawyer. She's and she loves math. She's very smart, um, very clever, very dedicated, very loyal. And she wants something more than just being a wife in the Republic. And again, we'll go into more of that in a bit. So uh, Elizabeth, um, once the woman, the maid, is hanged, she sends Elizabeth a package before her death. It's a copy of the Bullet Catcher's Handbook. Um, and the Bullet Catcher's Handbook is... They're all over the place. They're one of those things where it's it's a phrase book and a book of secrets. And when bullet catchers meet each other in different towns and one will start a sentence and the other will finish it with phrases from the book. No, no two are perfectly alike. Uh, they're all very different. Uh, we'll find out. Uh, we find out in this one that they're all valuable. Um, so, But Elizabeth's got a copy of it. But it turns out that Elizabeth's copy is, is something different. Um, there's information in it that's missing from others. This book has been in hiding for a long time. There's information that's missing from other books, and it looks like the patent office has been doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Um, but she also gets mixed up in um, unconscionable... She, she, a plot that involves unconscionable medical experiments um, that were... Again, as usual, we'll talk about it in a minute. But um, So that's Unseemly Science, and again, she manages to stop it, but the problem is that the Duke of Northampton is now aware of her moving around. He is he's once again reminded of her presence. He's raising the ante on her. Everyone wants to find her because the amount of cash is so unbelievable. Um, but we get to the Custodian of Marvels. Elizabeth is still hiding. Um, she's approached by one of the men from the circus from the first book um, to break into uh, <laughs> the offices of the patent court in London because that's where all the secrets are. That's where everything that holds up the gaslit empire is contained. And if Elizabeth can get in there, she can find the records of her father's trial and her father's imprisonment, and she can find out who the corrupt officer was who sentenced him and who allowed this to happen, and finally, maybe, she can get the Duke off her back and have the Duke held up for what he's been doing. Um, so, it's really, really good. Um, very exciting. Elizabeth is, is a really good character. Um, like I said, there's just a lot of crazy stuff that's going on in all of these, and she's just trying to 
free herself from this world and insist that she belongs to this man who used fraud and deception to run her father into, into the ground in order to buy her because he wanted to rape a 14-year-old girl. And part of what happens, part of what brings Elizabeth back out um, is that it's in the Custodian of Marvels because there's another case that comes up. Um, I think it's in the Custodian of Marvels. I can't remember which one. Uh, another case that comes up um, of another girl that this has happened to and that he does this to another girl. And so she's trying to stop it. Um, I think this girl was also... No, this girl was 19, but he did the same thing to her that he did to uh, Elizabeth's father. It was... Like I said, there's <laughs> a lot of weird parallels to the week uh, with these books. So, um, as usual, that's my <laughs> half-assed summary of three really, really good books. Um, and like I said, the patent office, uh, we're going to go in deeper into the patent office in part two because of who they are. They're huge. They're massive. Um, and it's, it's, we're going to need the second half uh, to go into the explanations on that one. So we are going to hear words from friends and uh, have a bit of a musical interlude. I'm going to get a drink. And then we will be back and we will discuss... Um, the issues with the Gaslit Empire. A body falls past the window. Whatever. <laughs> and you put, put it down and you feel like shaky all over. Both your hands are covered. Immediately peg him as a cogman. So we've known each other for years. One of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat. Damn. We had a... Oh my god! <laughs> So you took money from him, huh? We talked about this earlier. <laughs> he was only attacked by the forces of the American Confederation. <laughs> Are you constantly checking for traps? <laughs> the Steamrollers Adventure Podcast is available at rigstories.com or on iTunes. You can also get it on Stitcher and Google Play. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is also sponsored by the Judgment Night Radio Hour. Are you a fan of audio drama? Do you enjoy classic pulp fiction in the style of Dashiell Hammett, macabre southern gothic stories of the likes of Cormac McCarthy, or stirring drama reminiscent of August Wilson? Then tune in to the Judgment Night Radio Hour. The Judgment Night Radio Hour is an audio drama and fiction anthology podcast featuring lurid, rousing tales of existential angst, metaphysical mayhem, spiritual crisis, sin, repentance, redemption, justice, and judgment. Presented in the style of an old AM gospel radio broadcast, the series is hosted and narrated by the ominous fire of brimstone preacher Reverend Reginald Cephas Weaver III, who gives soul-stirring sermons in the form of Southern Gothic, neo-noir dramas, thrillers, and mysteries. Imagine if Flannery O'Connor directed The Twilight Zone with an all-black cast. This sinister series of short stories and radio plays can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find out more, follow their Twitter at jnightradio, visit their website on www.judgmentnightradio.com, or like its Facebook page at Judgment Night Radio. Turn or burn, literary listeners, but don't turn that dial.
Welcome back, my friends. That was Holly Golightly and the Brokoffs with Boats Up the River. And if you would like to hear more music of a steampunk mind frame in the vicinity of steampunk, I would highly suggest that you check out the Clockwork Cabaret. They are a weekly podcast. They post every Friday. And uh, usually about an hour and a half of some really, really good music. It's not all technically steampunk. But it works, and it fits, so go check out the Clockwork Cabaret podcast. Link is, of course, in the show notes. And let's move on to part two and discuss some unseemly science. Um, Now, the patent office is the governing body of this world, uh, for all intents and purposes. They hold the secrets. They keep control of the technology. Um... And they literally do divide the seemly from the unseemly. That's how it's described. Um, and they keep charge and track of everything. They have uh, secret libraries full of confiscated devices and books and ideas. And you don't really realize the extent of it for a while and what they've been doing. Um, but... They're constantly after technology that they feel doesn't need to be in public hands. Um, In the first book, um, the owner of the circus that Elizabeth infiltrates, um, Timson, he is using a box that appears to create gold, and he's giving the gold away. It seems to be real. It's not a trick. And the patent office wants this box. They want it locked down and out of the public hands. Um, And then there's what I mentioned earlier with Elizabeth's copy of the Bullet Bullet Catcher's Handbook when... She goes to, they see a uh, professor who specializes in that kind of thing, and as he's looking through the book, first of all, he's terrified um, because he knows she's a fugitive, but he's looking through the book, and he realizes that there's things in her book that are not in other copies. Her book was from before uh, 1815 when the Peyton office rose up and took charge. Her book was apparently never redacted, and what they start to find out is that the patent office has been expunging information on the unseemly technologies. Um, they're not supposed to be doing that, um, but they have been changing history um, to remove things so that people don't really know what's happened. Now, the patent office itself is not religious, but um, we are made aware that it does adhere to some to monastic principles. You know, John Farthing... Um, who is smitten with Elizabeth. He is an agent of the Peyton office and therefore celibate. He cannot be with her is what he tells her. Um, But in the third book, uh, The Custodian of Marvels, we find out that the Custodian of Marvels is not a person. It's actually uh, kind of like a supercomputer, and it has all the secrets of the Peyton office. Um, You feed in the cards, and you get the information. And what Elizabeth... Um, figures out is that the one thing that keeps um, coming up is that there's a a particular um, a particular type of gun technology it's called a barrel breach and it's mentioned in her book but it's been removed from other books and so once she finally gets into the patent office um, and starts getting information out of the custodian of marvels what she says, and this is from the book, this is from Custodian of Marvel. She says, I discovered that a battle and its technology had been wiped from history. I had not discovered why. But as I lay in my cell, an idea had begun to form. Those terrible guns cannot have been long invented when Waterloo began. The generals sent their armies to attack, not understanding that a hundred men so armed might hold out against battalions. Ample time for reinforcements to arrive on both sides. Thus, a single battle had been able to stretch for months, becoming an entire war. After such a harvest of death, it was no wonder a revolution had followed in the old Great Britain. From that, the Great Accord had been signed and the patent office brought into being, its mission to freeze the development of unseemly science. But the science they most wanted to ban was already in existence, so they used their powers to wipe it from history. They took all the guns, all the history books, every reference to it. Operation Clean Start must have taken generations. Indeed, their pursuit of my book proved it was still going on. So... They took they, this Operation Clean Start. The patent office decided within and of themselves, uh, unilaterally, to 
change history, to rewrite the history books, to remove any evidence that this great culling of men had ever happened. And they were not supposed to do that. They were supposed to bring people together. They were supposed to help control the technology and the science, but they weren't supposed to rewrite history. But they did, as any great group that we've ever read about in fiction or in real life, give them enough power and they will take advantage of it and they will start to make decisions that they feel are for the best when they're not necessarily for the best. They're for the best of the group, not for the people at large. Um, And so the Peyton office controls everyone. They control everything um, technically. And, you know, they they keep people in their place. They they harass the the travelers. Um, The traveling carnivals are subject to random raids by the Peyton office just to ensure that everyone knows their place in the hierarchy. Um, And the poor are mistreated in general. In this, this universe, uh, in the second book, when she's investigating the unseemly science in the second book, the, the medical experimentation, um, and it starts with a group of ice farmers. And they're literally what they sound like. They are people who farm ice. The ice comes down, or the water comes down. It's run into big grids and troughs. It freezes up. They cut the ice. They ship it out. They work in the winter. They don't work in the summer. Um... And so they're considered not the deserving poor. You know, they have all summer off. They're lazy. But this is their livelihood. They cut ice. <laughs> this is where they make their money. Um, but because they only work in winter, you know, they're lazy. And there's also, um, outside of the patent office, but within the Republic itself, like I said, there's the kingdom and there's the Republic. And the Republic is where Elizabeth has been living, um, theoretically with her brother that doesn't exist. But the Republic decides to start cracking down on immigrants. And this also becomes part of the issue in that a treaty is, an extradition treaty is going to be signed um, that could send Elizabeth back over the border to the door, to the, the door, <laughs> to the Duke of Northampton. Um, but the Republic starts cracking down on immigrants. They have to go and register um, once a week with the registry office. And of course she has to do this as herself and as her brother, um, because they decide they don't want immigrants and refugees there anymore. Everybody's going to send everybody back to where they came from. Um, and what I was mentioning earlier um, about the, the book two and the medical experiments, um, what she finally runs across, and the reason that ice is going missing in the second book from the ice farmers, <clears throat> it's not that it's going missing, it's being utilized in a different way than what it's supposed to be used for. There's a doctor that has been conducting experiments, uh, freezing experiments with people, freezing them, injecting them with different solutions and chemicals, keeping them on ice for some time, and then bringing them back. And um, what we find out is that he is eventually successful with this, but when they come back, they come back with no mind. But what happened when I was reading this, um, I was really struck by this because I, I... Over the summer, when I listened to the Annie Jacobson audiobook about Operation Paperclip, and she mentioned the uh, Dachau hypothermia experiments, um, and I had never heard of that before until I read her book, and what the... They were, they were horrific. They were terrible. Um, the Dachau hypothermia experiments... There was, at that time, uh, in World War II, obviously there was a limited knowledge of the physiological effects of cold um, and how quickly a German pilot could succumb to it because don't forget they were doing bombing runs over the channel into Britain. If they get shot down into the icy waters of the channel, that's it. They're dead. Um, So they started to try to figure out if there was a way to keep keep these German pilots from dying when they hit the channel and hit that freezing water. Um, And it became a, a big vested national interest in a way to avoid and to stop this hypothermia from happening. Um, so to study it and to try to devise a way to stop it from happening, concentration camp prisoners from a really, really diverse um, backgrounds and age groups and conditions, um, they were subjected to horrific experiments, one of which was literally sticking them in freezing tubs of water 
um, and taking their temperatures and checking them and there was chemicals involved and testing them to see how long they could hold out to see when the changes occurred and the problem well obviously the problem is is the majority of the problem is apparent in that horrible medical experiments took place with concentration camp prisoners but what people don't realize and the, the reason that I bring this up I don't know if this was Rod Duncan's intention when he he you know had this um this scenario in the second book like that's what it reminded me of but the reason that it's it's so pertinent is because Operation Paperclip uh, and the 1,000 Nazi soldiers that were brought to America, and we don't always realize the, the medical advances that we have now, the things that we appreciate, the things that keep us alive, um, the technologies that we use, a lot of it came from this. It came from Nazi doctors and Nazi scientists. That's um, why we got to the moon. It's why we did a lot of things because we fought with Russia to grab as many Nazis as we could because we wanted their science. Um, because, hey, you know, they've already done it, might as well take advantage of it. Um, and it brings up the idea of, well, I've always held that the right thing done for the wrong reason, or the, the, the wrong thing done for the right reason is still the wrong thing, and I believe, I don't know. We gained much in the way of technology and research um, and advances because of the Nazi scientists, but what did we lose? by bringing them here, by giving them shelter, by giving them fake names, by letting them settle into our population and letting them become part of our communities most of the time without us even realizing that it was happening. Normal people didn't know who these who they were. They were just more refugees from overseas. We didn't know who they were. They were brought in by the government and they were settled into communities and they became you know, part of people's lives. And... It's, it's, it's fucked up, man. It's just, it was a really fucked up thing that we did, and that Russia did too, um, just so that we could beat each other out. And I don't know how I feel about that one. That's, what did we gain, but what did we lose? Um, now, the other, the big uh, um, overarching issue for me within these books is the idea of women as commodities, uh, which we run into in a lot of these books, because it's... We run into it a lot in the world. Um, the kingdom obviously has a view of women. Women can't... Um, the, the best example, <laughs> when Elizabeth has to cross into the kingdom uh, in the first book to uh, on her investigation, and she's getting her money exchange. She's at the, at the, the money house getting her money exchange from republic to kingdom, and there's a woman there, a beautifully turned-out woman, um, who was moving among the crowd, making deals with the men there, and she's making some really, really, really good deals with the money changing, but she's not an official money changer because she can't be because she's a woman. But so all of the men um, underestimate her, and she ends up making massive bank off of these men who won't let her be gainfully employed. They underestimate her, and she makes money off of them. So women are, the, the feeling that I got from the kingdom is that women are more ornaments than anything. Uh, the kingdom is very flashy, it's very colorful, it's obviously it's a, a monarchy and they're royalists, um, but women have very little respect. And then we go over to the republic side, which is not Christian, it is logical, it is rational, it is Luddite, but... It adheres to what we saw in the Victorian era with the cult of motherhood and the woman as the center of the hearth and home. Now things are a little different in that it, everything is muted. It's charcoal grays, it's Russian blues, it's black. You don't wear um, bright colors. You don't wear anything that could be considered light. That they, they wore beautiful clothes, they could still be considered luxurious, but they were muted. They were much darker. Um, women, like I said, Elizabeth couldn't even travel, couldn't even live by herself. It would have been shocking. It wouldn't have been done. Um, she would never have been able to get anything done if she was trying to survive as a woman on her own. She had to create a fictional brother as a chaperone. 
in order to live her life. And there are times where she's trying to work, um, where she takes on jobs. Once she finally gets her boat working and she takes on job uh, hauling goods up and down the canal, and people, you know, the men that she encounters will say to her, where's your husband so that we can, you know, she's, well, he's busy. Um, so he told me, you know, how to, or he told me what, you know, what you owe, what needs to be done. Because she can't do any of this on her own. She can physically and mentally. She's quite capable. But no one will deal with her because she's a woman. And, you know, this, the, the situation in the kingdom with this duke who wanted her and, couldn't get her from her father and so engineered his downfall and sold her into indenture and everybody knew that this was happening and, and nobody did anything to help her. It was just the way it was and it was normal and it was, you know, that is life for the lower classes. And at one point when she is approached, she is found by some of the Duke's men and they're trying to take her back and one of them's telling her, you know, it won't be that bad. He'll only bother you, you know, a few times. Uh, it'll be a good life for you. <laughs> You know, so basically just, you know, put up with this man raping you every once in a while. But hey, you'll, you'll live in a nice house and you'll have good food. Um, and that's been the way that it's been presented to many, many women over many, many years. And while the Republic seems, the Republic is much more modest, um, they tend to shy away from anything of a sexual nature, um, but the men are still capable of things like that, but like I said, it's, it's, it, she, you know, if, if she's in the kingdom, she's going to be sold to the duke, she's in the republic, she's free from that, but she can't function on her own without a male chaperone, so, you know, what's, what's better, what's worse, take your, the best of really, really terrible situations. Um, and something that I, I thought was interesting, that I, I really thought was a interesting touch, was when she is... Uh, Elizabeth has a boat. The boat is named Bessie. Um, the way she explains it is that the boat was part of the, the uh, postal service and moving up and down the canal. It was a very powerful boat, a uh, very beautiful boat, and eventually it was taken out of commission uh, and... She came across it, and as under the guise of her brother, she bought it because she, it wasn't, it was no longer uh, functioning at that point when she bought it. The engine didn't work. The whole thing had been renovated and boarded up, and it was basically just a houseboat. She was living on it on the canal. Um, and what happens is there's there's some events that happen where the boat gets banged up, and there are some very very kind men um, that I I do feel like I should mention some of the men that she deals with in the Republic there in North Leicester, um, she thinks that she's an outsider in North Leicester, um, but she starts to learn that she's not as much an outsider as she thought she was, and they care for her very, very much. They, they really care for her. Um, her friend Julia, uh, Julia's family, um, once they find out what's going on with her and that she's running from a man who purchased her, um, People start to try to help her. They're protecting her, and they're hiding her. And I believe it's Julia's father and the owner of the boathouse. They're the wharf that offer to take a look at her boat and get it fixed up for her. And what happens when they're working on the boat, and they, 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 they reveal the engine, and it's, it's an amazing, it's a powerful engine, but on the engine... There is an ornamental female figurehead that is rising out of the engine. A beautiful, silvery female figurehead. And when she is looking at it, um, she is... Because she's the way that she's been raised. I mean, this is, this is a very buttoned-down society. Even in the kingdom, it's still very buttoned-down to a certain extent. And so she is here. And she's been in the Republic for a while now. I mean, it kind of absorbed some of their views. And so she's seeing this figure this naked female form that she realizes she's, she's, she's being forced to confront this object that was created solely for the male gaze. And while she says that she has no problem with female nudity, she has no problem with seeing other women naked, that's not her problem. Her problem is seeing this figure, this woman's body that was created solely and exclusively for men to gaze upon and look at, um, 
But interestingly, later on, it's, it's called the Spirit of Freedom is the, the name. And these were apparently very rare boat engines. Um, but she starts to feel later as, she's, as she contemplates it, as she stares at the figure and she's taking it in and looking at her eyes, the, the figure's eyes, and she feels that maybe the figure was, that whoever it was, that she she was more in control than Elizabeth originally thought when she first saw the Spirit of Freedom, that that, that the woman was, maybe she was more in control of the artist than it originally appeared. And so Elizabeth is is forced to acknowledge the male gaze and its effect on society and its effect on how we view the women around us and how it's okay to have this naked female figurehead and yet the women of the Republic are buttoned up and dresses to the ankles and you you know even the idea of wearing Julia is draws back at the idea of wearing I think it was a light green because that would she didn't want anybody to see her that way she had to cross into the kingdom and so Elizabeth is trying to tell her well you need to wear something different in the kingdom or they're going to pick you out immediately so Julia would not put on the lighter clothes until she was crossing over she would not because she didn't want anyone in the Republic to see her in immodest clothes and I think there's even um there's, if I remember correctly, there's guidelines for modest and moral dressing and realistic dressing because there's not hoop skirts. There's not, you know, these are not big, ridiculous dresses. These are practical. Still beautiful. Some people, because they describe some people who have very, who are, who are turned out very well but still modest. Um, and functional is, is one of the things I thought was really interesting, that the clothing be functional and a woman still be able to move, because she still has to do housework. She still has to raise children, and she still has to be modest and still has to be able to move and function, but she, God, she can't wear pants, you know. So it was, it was interesting facing these different views of, of women, um, especially given, like I said, everything that's happening right now, um, there was a comment made earlier in the week, and I don't know what she was thinking. Um, Donna Karen, the fashion designer, made the comment about Harvey Weinstein, and I don't know what she was thinking when she said this, but that was it the fault of women whose sexuality is out there and whose sensuality is out there. And if you've ever seen some of Donna Karen's clothes, Donna Karen has no room. <laughs> to talk about women putting their sensuality and their sexuality out there and that the assault is their fault because of the way that they dress. Um, and so this enters into that whole idea of how you dress, does how you dress have, have a bearing and on who you are and how you are perceived and your value in society um, because when she sneaks in in book two to go see the professor to have her book looked at he is an ethnologist um he's you know he's a it's not like he was an anthropologist um he studies the the romani culture um and so she dresses in a what the the girls of the time the the romani girls at the time would have been wearing um because she knows that it'll get his attention and it's a less modest form of clothing. Um, it's not as, res- as quote-unquote respectable. Um, it marks her out as one of those girls because before she gets in to see the professor and there are some other men who see her and they see her clothing and it marks her out as a girl who's willing to have a go. Um, so clothing then... Well, I say then. I mean, this is supposed to be 2009 um, in a weird world. But clothing as always... For women, not for men, clothing marks us out as being worthy or unworthy. It marks us out as being respectable or as being whores. And it's there's more to it than that. It's not about that. We are Our clothing speaks to who we are, but not in that way. Um, and so I thought that, that was a, an interesting take on... This woman who's trying to, like I said, she's trying to hold on to her autonomy. She's trying to hold on her own agency and protect her own body. Um, And because of these rules, because of the things that have happened, because of the way that she's had to protect herself, Elizabeth is in her 20s and she still has never been with anyone because she can't. There is no way for her to 
she can't let anyone know, first of all, that she's a woman alone. And if she got close to anyone, then they would eventually find out that she is her brother. Um, so there's no way that she can get involved with a quote-unquote respectable man. Um, and if anyone sees a man coming in on and off her boat who is not supposed to be her brother, then that leads to rumor and assumptions and scandal. So that can't be done either. So Elizabeth has kept herself to herself for many, many years because of what this Duke has done to her. So she ends up alone and in no relationship just because of the threat of what he wanted to do to her. Um, And this is what sexual assault and rape does. And even just the threat of it, it was a very real specter in her life at the age of 14 that this man was going to buy her and take her home and at one point she does confront the duke and she does sneak in and she is going to kill him um, but it ends up falling apart but when she's there and she sneaks in and she finds him in the middle of the night and there are two 12 to 14 year old girls in the bed because he continues to do this he's done it over and over again he's always done it and he gets away with it as so often happens over and over and over again. Um, So that is, (laughs) before I start crying, um, Elizabeth takes her life back into her hands and she recovers herself and she gets her justice, um, she gets her revenge, she gets... She clears her father's name. She knows who she is. Um, she will come together with John Farthing at the end. But again, it's it's light romance. The romance is there, but it's not overt, and that's why you know I liked it. But she's a strong character. She's a powerful character. Um, she has a good heart, and she's also a little broken. But she knows that, and she's trying to deal with that in the best way that any of us can. So, that is (laughs) the Fall of the Gaslit Empire series by uh, Rod Duncan. And again, this was on my list because of the technology run amok and out of control and, you know, being locked away from us um, and women who aren't being allowed to control their own lives. Um... And it's, it's, like I said, it was, it was really timely. I mean, I, I made these lists out months ago of how I was going to, the books that I was going to cover and when I was going to cover them. Um, and so this just happened to fall in line with what was going on this week, although I, I but the way things have been happening, it, it would have worked out at any week, I think. So I uh, highly recommend Fall of the Gaslit Empire series by Rod Duncan. He's also a pretty cool dude. Um, the links for all of the books on Amazon are in the show notes, and I do recommend the Audible. Of course, I recommend the Audible, but Gemma Whelan does a really good job, and I didn't realize who she was um, until the third book, and I decided to look her up. I didn't know she was Yara Greyjoy. I was very excited when I realized that that's why I recognized the voice. So get the books. They are phenomenal, and let me know what you think. Um, look me up on Facebook, on the Twitter. Uh, send me an email. You know how to find me. Come find me at Steampunk November. Come find me at the Wild West Victorian Fest. Talk to me. Um, I'm pretty nice. And we'll have a chat and see what you thought of the books and what you think I missed. Because I always miss something. We know that. Um, Not perfect. I do the best I can, but I'm old and I have a terrible memory. So, that is the Fall of the Gaslit Empire series. Go get them, check them out, and let me know what you think. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion does matter, and it has an impact on how many people can find us. I also want to, very gently, remind you that I do have a Patreon, and it's very, very sad and empty, and it's never been touched. Um, And I would ask that you remember that this is largely a one-woman show, um... And even for something as simple as what I'm doing, it can get expensive. Uh, I was th- I'm, I'm thinking about setting up at uh, one of the t-shirt companies that don't require money to get started. Um, but I would like to have a stock of merchandise that I can use it for giveaways and things like that. 
But my ability to do that depends on you, and the library depends on you. So uh, the link to my Patreon is in the show notes, and you can also reach it through the website. <clears throat> and with that, we're done. Now, don't forget that we're doing something a little special for Halloween. So join us in two weeks, Saturday, October 28th, for part one of The Repairer of Reputations from Robert Chambers' haunting anthology, The King in Yellow. The Steampunk Dollhouse is a Wind Up Girl Studios production and bears a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, who, much like the bullet catcher's daughter, has sass and spirit enough to bring down an empire. Our intro music is Baby, I'm Not Your Lady by Sing and Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Are you a woman who's tired of being told to be quiet and speak up, but not like that, and that can't be true? And who do you think you are? But seriously, why don't women speak up about harassment and abuse? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue stocking out. Ache beneath clang.